Hi, listeners. Today's guest is Dr. Jordan Peterson talking about delayed gratification. And so here's, here's some of the writing I've been doing over the last three years on the, on the motif of sacrifice. I'll start with just a brief intro before I read this. It took me a long time to understand what was meant in the Old Testament by sacrifice, and, which is strange because once I figured it out, it seemed bloody obvious. It seemed like, oh yeah, obviously that's what it means. But lots of times, if you figure something out correctly, it seems self-evident as soon as you figured it out correctly. Well, we'll see how that goes, but you know, it, it seemed to work for me anyways. Um, I, I knew that, of course, at least implicitly, I, I knew of the modern usage of the idea of sacrifice. Everyone understands that motif, is that if you want to make things better in the future, then you sac make sacrifices in the present. And maybe you even do that multi-generationally. In, in fact, you most definitely do if you're a good parent. I mean, you, you, and that's, I would say that's really particularly typical of, of, of immigrants, right? Because immigrants often come from terrible places and have to undergo terrible things to come to a new community where they get a rough reception and have a hard time getting their life going and a big part of the reason that they do it is to make their lives of their children better and luckily when they come to Canada usually given where they came from that actually works because where they came from is worse and here is better even though no you know immigrants often have to struggle to to get on their feet again they have to learn a new language and become enculturated and face the fact that they're not part of the mainstream culture and well you know Many of you know the whole story. So the idea that you make sacrifices for the future and you make sacrifices for your children, and that's, everyone understands that, and it's part of being responsible and mature and shouldering the burden of being properly. And you do that for yourself, too. If you're disciplined, in, in fact, that's almost what discipline means. It, discipline means that you're capable of making sacrifices because you're not disciplined if you just do something you want more rather than something that you're doing. That's not discipline, that's, maybe that works and great. If your life is working out that way, great, man, but that isn't, that isn't discipline. Discipline is when you want to do something right now and instead you think, no, I'm going to forestall my gratification, maybe forever, but certainly for a very long period of time, medium to long period of time, and you concentrate on something that you think will bear fruit in the medium to long run. And so you look into the future and you decide that by making today a little less impulsively pleasurable, shall we say, you'll make tomorrow a little bit more secure and productive. And then you actually do it too. And that's difficult, you know. And we discussed last week Adam and Eve's discovery of the future and, and, and the revelation of the possibility of the future, including the possibility of tragedy and suffering in the future. And, and it's our knowledge of the possibility of tragedy and suffering in the future that motivates us to sacrifice in the present so that we can reduce the unnecessary anxiety and uncertainty and pain that awaits us. Now, that's a negative way of putting it. We're also doing it so that, you know, we can have some joy and we can make life better and all of that. And, and that's not trivial, but the, the fundamental issue, especially once you have small children, this fundamental issue is to stave the suffering the hell off, right? That's what you want to do. That's your primary moral obligation if you're a person who has any 
if your eyes are open at all, that's your primary obligation. And so you make the sacrifices that are necessary, and you set up the future. And, well, the, the, the motif of sacrifice is there in the Old Testament. But it's more, it's so concrete that it's difficult to draw a parallel between the two. At least for me, they didn't align self-evidently. And I don't remember in my rather limited religious education as a child in, in the United Church, because I went to the United Church till I was about 13, um, I don't ever remember anybody pointing out that, like, the sacrifices that Cain and Abel were making or the sacrifice that Abraham was supposed to make or the sacrifices that people were making to God were the, were the precursors, let's say, the dramatic precursors to the psychological idea of sacrifice that we all hold as civilized people in the modern world. So, although it seems obvious, as I said, once you lay it out, it, I don't remember that ever being explained to me. But, and then, well, and then let me read this, so now that I've sort of introduced it. Here's what happened as humanity developed. First were the endless tens or hundreds of thousands of years prior to the emergence of written history and drama. The twin practices of delay and exchange began to emerge slowly and painfully. So here's a cool psychological study. So uh, it's called the marshmallow test. And maybe it's even a reliable study, even though it was done by social psychologists. It's probably replicable. Um, and it's a nice study. So you take small children and you bring them into a room and you put something that they would like in front of them, a marshmallow, and you, then you torture them, basically. You say, see that marshmallow? And the kid thinks, yeah, man, I see that marshmallow. It's like, you can have that marshmallow right now. Or if you wait, I think the experiment is 10 minutes, then you can have two marshmallows. And so that puts the child in quite a conundrum because they're being asked to trade an actual, concrete, tangible marshmallow for two hypothetical mar future marshmallows. And it's not that easy to conjure up a hypothetical future reality that has the same tangible significance as something real right in front of you. And so it's an amazing thing that people can do that. And so then the experimenter leaves and some children grab the marshmallow and just you know, chomp that thing down right now. Other kids, they videotape kids um, while they're waiting, and they do all sorts of things. They whistle, they look at the ceiling, they sit on their hands, you know, they try to distract themselves. Of course, they're eyeing that marshmallow like a squirrel eyeing a nut and, and trying to restrain themselves. And, you know, what I see in that is that the child's prefrontal cortex, the higher cortical systems, are warring with the underlying motivational systems, more primordial motivational systems that govern such things as hunger. The hunger system, the hypothalamic system, says there is something sweet and fat right sitting there, right bloody now. Grab that thing and stuff it down now. And I'm sure many of you have a constant battle with your hypothalamus with regards to sweet and fat things and often lose. So you can feel <laughs> some sympathy for the child. But and the hypothalamus has these tremendously powerful tendrils upward into the brain, in, into the parts that we would associate more with voluntary control, and the voluntary control centers have these little weak ribbons going down to control the hypothalamus. It's, it's pretty obvious, if you know something about neuroanatomy, 
what part is actually in charge when the chips are down. And it's not easy for children to learn to regulate those underlying primordial impulses, the ones that are wired in, the ones that we share with animals. But they do it. And, and, and the cool thing is, this is what Walter Michel found, he's the guy who did the study, was that the long-term outcome for the children who can delay gratification in the marshmallow test is much more positive than it is for the children that are impulsive and eat the marshmallow instantly. It's delay of gratification. Now, it's likely that that's associated with trait conscientiousness, although that specifically hasn't, that specific connection has not yet been established, but they seem conceptually very, very similar. Um, so, so, anyways, this emerges in children probably between the ages of two and four, something like that. They should have it in place by four because it's very difficult for them to really interact well with other children without having that delay of gratification in place. Because if you can't delay gratification, other kids don't like you because you're, you want everything your way and you want it now and you're, li you're liable to temper tantrums and that sort of thing. You haven't got the kind of self-control necessary to make you fun to play with. So you can see that emerging in children and it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. And, and not only that, if it emerges, it predicts positive long-term outcomes, just like trait conscientiousness does, by the way, because trait conscientiousness is the second best predictor of long-term success over the lifespan in Western cultures. It's second after intelligence. And so in our societies, the people who do best across time are the people who have high IQs and who work hard. And I would say that's a pretty decent, what would you call it? It's a validation in some sense that our cultures are working properly because what you would want I would say, if the system is working meritocratically, like it should, and if you're trying to extract resources from those who can contribute at a higher rate, then what you would want to have happen is that the hardworking, smart people do better. Hopefully, if that's the case, then everyone does better. Hopefully. Anyways, so you can see this developing in children. First were the endless tens or hundreds of thousands of years prior to the emergence of written history and drama. The twin practices of delay and exchange began to emerge slowly and painfully. Then they became represented in metaphorical abstraction as rituals and tales of sacrifice. It's as if there's a powerful figure in the sky who's judging you. You better keep him happy or look the hell out. We've been watching ourselves deal with him for a long time. He seems to like it when you give up something you value. So, practice sharing and sacrificing until you get good at it. No one actually said any of this so long ago, although they said something very similar. But it was implicit in the practice and then in the stories. Action comes first. Implicit comes first. People watched the successful succeed and the unsuccessful fail for thousands and thousands of years and we thought it over and we drew a conclusion. The successful among us sacrifice. The successful among us delay gratification. The successful among us bargain with the future. And then a great idea begins to emerge in ever more articulated form. That idea is the point of a long and profound story. It's the moral of the story. And I'm going to engage in some foreshadowing here. 
What's the difference between the successful and the unsuccessful? The successful sacrifice. And things get better as the successful practice their sacrifices. The question becomes increasingly precise and simultaneously broader. What is the greatest possible sacrifice for the greatest possible good? You know, if you, if you push a question in a direction, perhaps there comes a time when you can't formulate it any more precisely and broadly, and, and, and that, 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 that's the point at which the question, in some sense, and perhaps even the answer, the question becomes archetypal. It, it becomes archetypal because it, it can't be bested. And, and this is like an ultimate question in some sense. How are you going to ask a more broad-based question than that? What is, given the initial presuppositions that you have to make sacrifices, then the logical endpoint to that is something like, okay, if you have to make a sacrifice, what's the greatest possible sacrifice and for the greatest possible good? That's a good question. The answer becomes increasingly profound. The God of Western tradition, like so many gods, requires sacrifice. We've already examined why, but sometimes he goes even further and requires the sacrifice of what is loved best. This is why. And this is another one of mankind's fundamental discoveries. Sometimes things do not go well. That, that's self-evident. But here's the rub. Sometimes when things are not going well, it's precisely that which is most valued that is the cause. Why? It's because the world is revealed through the template of your values. If the world you are seeing is not the world you want, therefore, it's time to examine your values. It's time to rid yourself of your current presuppositions. There's a famous experiment that I've alluded to a couple of times, I believe, in this lecture series. The Invisible Gorilla Experiment, and in, in the Invisible Gorilla Experiment, there's two teams of players, each with three members, one dressed in black and the other dressed in white, and each team is passing a basketball back and forth to the team members and milling about. Um, you see a video of them doing so. They basically fill the video screen, and. The white team is passing a basketball to the white team members and the black team is passing a basketball to the black team members and your job, as, as far as the experimenter is concerned, is for you to count the number of times that the black, black team, yes, black team passes the basketball back and forth. So that's what you do. So now you have an ambition and an aim and a value. And the ambition and the aim and the value, they're all the same thing, and that is to perform well at the task. Now, the thing that's so cool about this, and this is really so cool, it's just unbelievably, it's just unbelievable that this is the case. It's like a complete validation of, of a certain element of the Buddhist worldview. Um, so they pass the ball for a couple of minutes, and then the experimenter says to you, how many? And you say 15, and because you're happy and you're happy with yourself because you've been paying attention. And, and the experimenter says, yeah, that's right, or maybe not, maybe you missed one. And then the experimenter says, did you see the gorilla? And half of you say, what, what, what gorilla? Like, really? And, he, and the experimenter says, yes. And then he rewinds it and plays the video, and like a minute and a half into the three-minute video, sure enough, in walks this guy in a gorilla suit, six foot three or so, stands in the middle of the game, right in the middle of the game, the same size as the players, 
perfectly, obviously evident, beats his chest for like a second and a half, and then sort of saunters off. And half the people who watch the video don't see the gorilla, which is absolutely shocking. And what that means is that your ambitions blind you to the nature of reality. Now, they illuminate some reality, but they blind you to most of it. And that's fine, because you're not, there's not a lot of you in some ways. You're a very pinpoint thing, like a laser beam. And so you just can't be attending to everything all the time. But one of the things that you might ask yourself, once you know that, is that if you're suffering dreadfully, then one possibility is that you're so fixed on the point, you're so fixed on a point, the fact that you're so fixed on the point that you're fixed on might be integrally related to why things are going so catastrophically wrong. Now, perhaps not, because, you know, there's a lot of arbitrariness about life. And perhaps you suffer even when you don't deserve to. That seems to happen in the book of Job, for example, because Job is a good guy, and God has a bet with Satan, which seems like another relatively nasty thing to do, to let Satan just torture him, and he does quite nicely, um, to see if he'll turn against God. And it, it seems like a rather playground sort of thing for God to engage in, but the point is, is that even in a document like the Old Testament, there's ample suggestion that sometimes people just get wiped out and hurt even if they're living good moral lives aiming properly and all that there's an arbitrariness in life that's not eradicable but it's possible that it's what you're clinging to that's hurting you and it's even possible that it's the thing that you're clinging to the hardest that's hurting you the most that could easily be someone you love like lots of times i see people in therapy and they're miserable for one reason or another, and sometimes it's because they have a very close relationship with a family member, and that just isn't working. You know, the, the family member, for the sake of simplicity, will say, is not really oriented towards helping them have a good life. The family member is instead oriented towards making them as bloody miserable as you can possibly make anyone. And, and what would you say? Exploiting the the bond between family members in order to enable that. And then, sometimes, the sacrifice that's necessary is either merely distancing yourself from that person, sometimes substantively, and sometimes seriously distancing yourself from them. Like, we don't talk anymore, ever. And so that's pretty damn rough, and it hurts, and all of that, but... but it's a good example of the fact that sometimes in order to extract yourself from the miserable bit of chaos that you happen to be enmeshed in, you have to let go of what you love best. If the world you are seeing is not the world you want, therefore it's time to examine your values. That's really worth, it's really worth thinking about, you know, because the alternative too is to curse fate. Right, because if it isn't you, and there's nothing you can do to change, there isn't something you're doing that's wrong, then it's fate itself, it's the world itself, it's other people, let's say, because they're a huge part of the world, or it's the nature of the world itself, or, or it's God himself in whatever form you either believe in or don't believe in, because it's fundamentally all the same in the sort of situation that I'm describing. So, and one of the things that's really interesting, and I mentioned this before about the Israelites in the Old Testament, is that they... They got this right. It's really something because what happens to the Israelites over and over in the Old Testament is that they get all 
puffed up about how wonderful they are and then they make moral errors because they're arrogant and then God comes along and just cuts them into pieces for like generation after generation and then they wobble back to their feet and, but they always maintain the same attitude which is we did something wrong. We did something wrong. It's like, it's like, a, it's like an axiom rather than observation, is that if we're not, if things are not laying themselves out for us as they should be, then we cannot curse God. We have to look to ourselves. Well, and you think, well, why not curse God? Because maybe it's his fault. And that's a really good question. And one of the things that I've tried to figure out over the last 30 years is, well, why not just curse God? Because there is this arbitrary element to existence, and we are vulnerable and there is a plenty of suffering and things are unfair like there's problems right there's injustice and unfairness and all of these things and, and endless suffering so why not just lay it at the feet of god and the whether god exists or not in some sense by the way with regards to the metaphysics of this particular discussion is not relevant it's the point remains the same either way and the answer is as far as i can tell that if you refuse to take on the responsibility yourself and you attempt it to lay it at the feet of either society or being itself, then you instantly start to act in a way that makes everything much worse. Not only for you, but for everyone else, and maybe even for being itself. And so, no, it's not helpful. Now, if, you're, if you decide that it's you, you've got the problem, maybe that's not even true. Like, maybe you are someone who's being tortured by the bet between God and Satan, and like, too bad for you if that happens to be the case. But it still seems to be the appropriate thing for a human being who's standing on his or her own two feet in a proper manner to take the responsibility on for themselves, regardless of the counter-arguments that might be made against it. That's really something. It's time to rid yourself of your current presuppositions. I also think of that, it's a Deadwood issue. You know, one of the things you see with motifs like the, 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 the phoenix. Remember when Harry Potter goes off to fight, he's like St. George, he goes off to fight the, the hell is that thing, the basilisk that turns you to stone when you look at it. It's a dragon for all intents and purposes. It's guarding a, vir a virgin. Vir what's her name? Vir it's not Virginia, it's close to that though. Ginny, Gen Ginevra, right, which is a variant of Virgin and variant of Vir Virginia. Well, when he gets bitten by the, by the dragon and, 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 and poisoned, that's the dragon of chaos, right? The thing that turns you to stone when you look at it, when he gets bitten by it, then he's going to die. And yeah, well, if you get bitten by the thing that turns you to stone when you look at it, if it bites you, man, if you're not dead, you're going to wish you are. It's one of the two. And then the phoenix flies in and cries tears into the wound and that heals him. And the phoenix is the thing that allows the dead wood to burn off occasionally, let's say. Well, it's, I think it's once every hundred years with a phoenix. And of course, it's pretty dramatic. The whole damn bird has to go up in flames and then there's nothing left but an egg. But there's a very serious message there too, which is that, you know, you can compare yourself in some sense to a forest fire to a forest you know and a forest has to burn now and then for the dead wood to clear so that the forest can actually maintain its continued existence and if you stop the forest from burning for a prolonged period of time which happened in the united states when they were trying to manage the forest fires too tightly then all that happens is the dead wood accumulates and accumulates and accumulates and accumulates and accumulates until the whole damn forest is dead wood 
and then lightning hits it and it burns so hot that it burns the topsoil off. And then there's nothing left, nothing grows. And so that's a good moral lesson, which is don't wait too long to let the damn dead wood burn off, you know? Maybe a little self-immolation on a daily basis might be preferable to burning yourself all the way down to the bedrock, you know, once every 20 years or so, because maybe there won't be anything left of you when you do that. And, you know, that happens to people all the time. I, I've seen that happen to people many, many times. The dead wood accumulates, the mess around them gathers, the chaos that they haven't dealt with accumulates, and then one day the spark comes and they burn so far and so fast that there's not enough left of them to recover. And then they're the people who've been eaten by the beast. They're the people who've been eaten by the dragon and now are inside its belly, another very common archetypal motif. And while maybe a hero will come along and rescue them, or maybe they'll just stay in there forever. And that's a precursor to the idea of hell. And it's not something I would recommend. So a little medicine on a regular basis is a lot better to, than total immolation um, on terms other than your own, sporadically. It's time to rid yourself of your current presuppositions. There's another thing that... See, in the Soviet Union, when Solzhenitsyn wrote about the Soviet Union and its pathologies, it, it sort of peaked in terms of its pathological authoritarianism when it became illegal to complain that your life wasn't going well. And you just think about how horrible that is, eh? Because, because you know, lots of times your life isn't going well. I mean, and I, I don't mean this in some casual way. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe you have diabetes and you're, you're, you know, maybe you're going to lose your, your feet or something. Like, it's really not, it's nothing trivial that's going on here. Something is not good. Or maybe it's economic or maybe you're unemployed or, and, but, you see, the idea in the Soviet Union was, well, we already have all the answers. Everything's perfect. Already. That's what totalitarians think. Well, if everything's perfect, and you're suffering, then, well, maybe there's something wrong with you. Because everything is perfect, after all, and if you're suffering, then, and what are you going to come out and say? Well, I'm suffering? It's like, well, then you're evidence that things aren't perfect, right? You're like a widow or an orphan in an Old Testament story, you know, when the kings got too high and mighty, then they wouldn't pay enough attention to the widows and the orphans, and then the prophet would come along and say, you know, those widows and orphans, they're a lot more important than you think they are, and if you don't pay attention to them properly, then things are going to fall apart around you in a way that you just can't even imagine. And so, well, then you're sort of like your own widow and your own orphan, but you don't get to say, hey, look, you know, things aren't perfect yet, because I'm actually having still quite a rough time here. You don't get to admit to your own suffering. If you can't admit to your own suffering, then you certainly... See, the suffering, the, especially the additional suffering, the excess suffering, should be treated as evidence that you're not doing something quite right yet. It should be treated as evidence that you're wrong. There's something important that you're doing that's wrong. I understand how harsh that is, and I'm not saying that everyone who's suffering is suffering because they're doing something in some simple way that's wrong. I was in an elevator once in a hospital. It's a very terrifying thing. And this person got on who was just in an absolute state of shock, you know. I mean, it was really not good. And I don't remember how this happened, but I engaged the person in conversation, and they just said that they had just been diagnosed with what looked to be terminal cancer. And... Uh, what was horrifying about it was that what they were doing was going over their life in the elevator, trying to figure out what they had done in order to deserve such a fate. You know, they had immediately taken it 
on themselves as a moral failing. And that's not what I'm saying. You can't come up to someone who has cancer and say, well, if you weren't such a bloody idiot throughout your whole life, you wouldn't have cancer. And believe me, that happens a lot more than you think. And people who have diseases like that get blamed for it. That's not what I'm saying. It's not like that. It's, 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 it's a more generalized attitude that is that if life isn't yet what it should be, then you have a response, you have a primary responsibility to do something about it. And the place to start looking is to your own errors and to fix them. And that's, and that's, that's, that's a safe bet, man, because you're probably doing some things that you would, wouldn't have to be doing that if you fixed would make things better. So it's time to let go and to sacrifice who you are for who you could become.